WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. It wasn't until I moved to Michigan that I realized that there were so many apple varieties. Did you know that there are apple varieties that have red or pink flesh instead of the typical white? Today we're here to talk to researcher Chris Gottschalk about his research on apples. Chris, why do you study apples and what do you study particularly about them? I think the major reason that brought me to apples is because it's a tree fruit that is very important to the Michigan economy. And honestly, I just love the way they taste. As far as my research goes, it's pretty diverse. I work in like four different realms, the way I would refer to it. The first would be looking at the genetics of flowering. The second is looking at how we can use hormones to control flowering. And the third and fourth kind of tie together. And those are related to a hard cider apple cultivar evaluations and red fleshed apple breeding. So I'm evaluating different apples for their use in hard cider under Michigan conditions. And then the fourth one is related to red fleshed apple breeding which ties into the hard cider work because we can use it to create rosé ciders. It's nice to meet you, Chris. Like Chelsea was mentioning earlier, there's so many different types of apple varieties, and you had talked about how you're studying specifically the genetics of flowering in these apple trees. How diverse are the apples that you're working with, and why is it important to study the flowering of apple trees in the first place? I actually work on a really wide range. So I work on not only your common commercial cultivars like Honeycrisp or Gala or Gala, however you'd like to pronounce that, but I also work on a lot of wild species that are native to North America because they offer some unique genetics that we could potentially harness in the future to help control some of the flowering traits in apple that would be more productive and sustainable for our industry. So the basis of my flowering research is following two different, I would say, production limitations that we have. The first is called biennial bearing. It's where we have these fluctuations from year to year in the amount of flowers that are produced on a tree that's controlled by the amount of fruit that is actually produced the year prior. And I'm trying to understand why fruit inhibits development, but actual floral initiation the previous season. And then the second aspect that I'm looking at is mostly the diversity in which bloom times occur in the spring. And a lot of that might be underlying not only some of our dormancy factors, so how trees react to the cold, especially over like the winter period and into the spring, but actually looking to see if there's differences in the timing in which flowers are initiated and the pace of which they develop the year previous of when they bloom. So flowering isn't particularly important to a lot of apple production because it affects a lot of the processes that I study affect a lot of the high value ones. So biennial bearing is a trait that's very common in uh, Honeycrisp, for instance. And if we can start harnessing methods to control it, not only through applied means, but also through the genetics, we can help create a more sustainable and efficient production management system for that apple cultivar. Hopefully in the end, we would help reduce the price of like Honeycrisp, just because currently that's a very expensive apple if you've ever purchased it in a grocery store. So a lot of this work that I do has a high impact, not only for apple producers, but also the consumer at the end. Recently this summer, around July, we spoke to Kathleen Rose, who's a researcher who studies cherry genetics. I recall that she had a whole field where they had different cherry trees and they were trying to understand the crosses between the trees because there were different types of cherries. And like you were saying, there are different types of apples. Do you have a field of apple trees where you study? And if you do, how well do you understand the genetics behind those trees? So I do have a field that I work in, and it's actually really close to Kathleen's. 
the basis of her lab is more looking at our breeding context, where my work is more looking at the genomics of it. So when I work in Honeycrisp, we already know the parents of Honeycrisp that was recently found out. But what I primarily do is I look at how the genes within the apple tree are responding to a treatment. And we do this using genomic approaches. So looking at the entire genome and how it's responding to that treatment. So in that sense, we do understand the genetics that underlie Honeycrisp, but we don't know how those genetics are influencing flowering in terms of what I am particularly studying. Thanks for clarifying that difference between your work and Kathleen's research and how you're studying the entire genome of the apple while Kathleen was researching one specific gene in the cherries. Whenever you're collecting the samples from the apple trees, what is the best part of the apple to collect your sample from? Is it from the flesh itself or are you taking it from the skin of the apple? So when I'm studying the genetics or the genomics of flowering, I'm going to be actually sampling what we call the apex. And that's the actively growing tip of a shoot or a branch. And that's actually where the flowers are going to be formed for the following season. So when I'm going out there and sampling that, I'm actually cutting off a mixture of tissue that comprises the whole apex structure. And then we take that back to the lab and we'll extract RNA from it. When I think of the word apex, I think of like a mathematic vocabulary word because the apex was like the tip of a polygon. After you've gathered your sample, how do you transport it back to the laboratory and then analyze it? So typically when we're assessing gene expression, I'm going to sample that apex in the field and freeze it in liquid nitrogen. That way we can kind of take a snapshot in time of how those genes are reacting to our treatment. Once we have that, we can then take it back to the laboratory and we can extract the RNA from that frozen tissue. And then we can subject that to RNA sequencing, which is just like DNA sequencing, where you're trying to understand the letter codes that are in sequence. But in this case, we're looking at the messenger molecule that's being sent from the genes to the ribosome and which then get turned into proteins. It's really hard to fathom how it's possible to study entire genomic sequences all at once, but with the assistance of computers, it does make it easier, I could imagine. Whenever you're working with these genomic codes for the apples, how do you know which genes are involved with the expression of flowering within that entire genomic code, and how are you able to determine which ones they are? So we do this in a kind of a systematic approach, where we first look at what the literature has told us in model organisms, primarily like the small little mustard plant called a Arabidopsis. So that whole pathway that controls flowering in Arabidopsis is fairly well studied. So what we do is we look at all the genes that are involved in Arabidopsis, and then we look for ones that have conserved sequences or very conserved letter codes within Apple. That way we can try to say that they're very similar to one another and they most likely have some shared function potentially. And then we can start assessing how they're behaving in terms of their expression. And then we can see if that correlates with what we imagine the function being. And that allows us to kind of take a broad approach at looking at all the genes that are involved in flowering within our plant that we're specifically looking at. But then in addition to it, we can also look at other pathways that feed into the flowering pathway, such as hormones. I don't know much about growing apples. I do know that there are stuff for the human body, such as growth hormones. Are you looking at hormones that are specifically correlated with the flowering of these apples? So plant hormones have lots of various functions, and in particular is a couple that have very vital roles into the flowering process. So I specifically study those ones in particular, just like in humans. But the way I do it is I will go out to the trees and I will spray them with these hormones and we'll try to see how they respond to that treatment. 
uh, similar to what you would be doing if you were spraying a pesticide, but instead of spraying a pesticide, I'm spraying a hormone treatment. As far as I understood, these plant hormones must be different from the ones that are used in animals or humans. Whenever you're spraying these plant hormones, however, are you taking any precautions necessary whenever you're doing this? Are you wearing any sort of PPE or personal protective equipment to make sure that you're not being exposed to the hormones? What is that process like? So most of the hormones that I study are commercially available to any apple grower, but they do require you wearing personal protection equipment. And that's typically listed on the label of that particular product. So when I go out there to go spray a certain chemical, I will review the label and put on whatever is recommended by the EPA to ensure that I am safe and I don't inhale or get into contact with any of these chemicals in the event that they have a potential interaction with humans. In most cases, I would suspect they would not, but there is always a reason to be careful and cautious when using chemicals, especially when you're trying to turn it into almost like an aerosol. Even though they most likely do not pose any harm to you, I'm glad that you're taking the proper precautions. After you spray the apple trees with these hormones, how do you evaluate the effect? So I look at it in two aspects. The first, we'll go out and look to see at the effect on flowering. So I'll spray these hormones during the summer of the year prior of bloom. So when I go back out the following year, I'm going to go out just before bloom time and I'm going to actually stand next to the trees and I'm going to physically count the number of flowers on these clusters that form. And the way I'm testing to see if the hormones had an effect is I'm comparing it versus a control treatment that didn't receive any spray. So if we're spraying a hormone that's trying to stop flowering, we should see a lower amount of flowers forming on the tree versus the control. And then are you applying these same evaluations to the hard cider apples? And what is the difference anyways between hard cider, sweet cider, any other types of cider that exist? So the evaluations I do for the hormone treatments can be applied to our hard cider work. And I do look at them because we want to see if the hard cider apples have fluctuations or variations in the amount of fruit or flowers that they produce each year. But the second aspect of most of my evaluations is looking at fruit quality. So I apply this both to the hormone work and to my hard cider work. And the way I do that is I mostly harvest the fruit. I press them and I figure out the amount of sugar in there, also amount of acidity that they might have. So like how sharp the flavor might be. And we also look at another aspect, which is called the tannins. And that's these bittering compounds that give a real drying feel to sometimes to the mouth, like if you bite into a crab apple. And as far as the difference between hard cider and sweet cider is hard cider has gone through a fermentation process where it has now become alcoholic. So we don't do any fermentations with our apples, but we are just looking at to see if they have the attributes that are desirable for this hard cider production. Beyond just looking at the attributes that these fruit have, how are you evaluating the apples? So we have a very large planting of about 96 different cultivars which are varieties of apples that we are cultivating. And those are all at our Clarksville Research Station, which is also where Kathleen works and a lot of my genomics research is done. But in addition to that, we have about 60 of those cultivars replicated at four grower orchards throughout the state of Michigan. That way we can assess how each of these apples are performing, not only in terms of their fruit quality, but how they are producing fruits, are they susceptible to diseases, if they can even grow in these various environments that span almost the entire state of Michigan. I think it's great that you're working with all of these other local growers to see what the effects are of the plant hormones on your different apples that you're testing with. But why is it important to work with these growers in the first place? 
could you talk to us about what that relationship is between the researcher and the grower themselves, and how do they provide input into your research studies? Each of our growers I visit at least a couple times a year, in which I not only look at the trees that they have that I've provided them, but they also will be sending me fruit from these trees in the years to come, because we just planted these orchards a year ago, so they're still really young and not producing fruit. Beyond that, they're constantly in contact with me through email and phone. They're constantly letting me know if they see anything, such as if a cultivar perishes due to disease, they would let me know and I can record that. But the end goal of all of that work is to kind of boil down a giant collection of 60 cultivars in their case, down to a small number in which we could recommend all the other growers and producers of hard cider in our state to start growing if they choose to do so. That way they have an apple or they have a set of cultivars that they know will perform very well within their conditions and within to their location that they might be working in. Earlier you mentioned the red-flushed apples and rosé ciders. Usually whenever I think of rosé, I think of wine because I'm more of a wine drinker than a cider drinker. Can you explain to me the process of making rosé cider? Sure. So these apples are really unique in that not only is the flesh really dark red colored, but that means the juice that you press from these apples also very dark red. And when we ferment that, it creates a red or pink colored cider, which is all just from its own natural attributes. You're not having to add any other fruit to get that color in there, which is really unique in the sense that it's different than wine in which wine, you sometimes mix two different colored grapes together to get a rosé. This is all coming from a single apple. Now, as far as the color stability or the how we maintain that color, we have to sometimes add other attributes just to make sure that we can keep that color around through the whole fermentation process. So sometimes you can buy a cider that's a little bit more orange colored, but it's still considered a rosé. I never realized that that's how rosé ciders were made, actually. They're pretty good. I would say I lean more towards the drier cider so I could enjoy a nice rosé cider. The past couple of years that Chelsea and I have lived here, actually, we've also had the opportunity to go out and check out different local cider orchards that exist here in the mid-Michigan area. And whenever we go out there, it's always a really nice time, whether it's enjoying and sampling some of the new hard ciders that are being produced or going apple picking and bringing home apples to make pies, for example. Throughout the time that you've been working on your work, what has been your most memorable experience in your research? My most memorable experience. Oh, this is a fun one. Part of my cider research and evaluating these cultivars actually led me to go to New York quite often, where I actually got to sample fruit to bring back here for analysis from the USDA uh, Malice Collection, which is their giant apple collection where they have thousands and thousands of varieties all growing in one small orchard. It's kind of a, what we call a master collection for not only use in like genetic work, but also for breeding new apples. A lot of the apple breeders go in there to try to find unique genetics that might have attributes that are promising for not only consumers, but for researchers. But I get to go through there and get to eat thousands of apples at a time so in some instances. But I have to say, you don't want to eat that many. You usually just bite it and spit it out. I was really excited whenever you said that you get to try all of these apples, but then really confused when you said that you spit it out. Why would you spit out the apples? Well, you can imagine after trying a few hundred or a thousand over a few days span, it can get pretty taxing on your palate to keep eating those apples. But in addition to it, apples contain a unique sugar that can upset your stomach. So if you drink a lot of sweet cider per se, you usually get fairly sick afterwards. So you don't want to eat that many apples in one sitting either. So what I do is I just take a bite 
chew it up a little bit, get a little kind of a sampling of the flavor and aroma, and then I try to spit it back out. That's why I love doing these interviews. We always learn something that I've never even thought was even a thing before hearing about it whenever we talk about their research. Thanks for coming to talk to us about your work on Apple Genomics, Chris. We really do appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at scifiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.